We have the uh, opportunity to hear from a very familiar uh, man that's preached for us before today. Shane Rosenthal will bring us the word. As you all know, Shane is the founder and host of Questions of Faith podcast. He, um, he also is one of the original creators of the White Horse Inn radio show. And we'll welcome Shane to our pulpit. Well, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you once again as we have the opportunity to explore God's Word together on this Lord's Day. Today we'll be taking a close look at the text of our New Testament, sorry, our Old Testament lesson from Genesis 32 and the famous wrestling match that we find there. But before we begin our exploration of this fascinating and mysterious text, we first need to do a little background work uh, so we can better understand how this passage fits with many of the themes that have already sort of been um, explained or introduced throughout the book of Genesis. The first thing we need to do is to realize the fact that Jacob has always been a wrestler. You know, the first time that Jacob was introduced, he was, you know, we're told that in the womb he was struggling with his brother, struggling before the twins were finally born. And when Esau was born first, he gained the birthright. That's the way it was. That's the way it worked in the ancient world. The one who was born first got the birthright. Jacob came out second, and, and he, as he emerged from the womb, was grasping his brother's heel, which is actually why he was called Jacob, for Yaakov in Hebrew means heel catcher. Heel grabber. Metaphorically, that word, Yaakov, can also mean supplanter, cheater, deceiver, the one who's trying to trip up the other person. And that actually is a good description of Jacob's character as we see throughout the pages of Genesis. This becomes clear in Genesis chapters 25 and 27 as we find him cheating his brother of his blessing and birthright. In order to, to secure the status of the firstborn, he deceives his father Isaac, even to the point of wearing his brother's clothes and calling himself Esau. In Genesis 27, 33, Isaac candidly tells Esau, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Oddly, however, the result of this deception is that Esau's dwelling place will now be away from the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven. What's really strange about this part of the story is when you study the details of the blessing that Jacob receives through his deceptive tactics, you see that he ends up gaining for himself and all of his posterity the fruitful land that God promised to Abraham, the land of promise, the land of Canaan, this this area where, the, where milk and honey flow. Whereas Esau and his descendants are now destined to live east to the land of Eden, this dry and infertile region, this place that's barren. But is this the way that God's promise to Abraham ends up working out? Is this how the people of Israel ended up becoming the inheritors of the promised land through Jacob's treachery? What kind of a story is this? 
It's amazing to me that Israel's founding patriarch is presented in Genesis as such a schemer and deceiver. What other nation in the history of the world has ever presented the founder of their clan or nation in such a way? This is not your typical hero story, the hero tale of the leader of our society. Think about the stories of George Washington, how noble he was. He chopped down the cherry tree. He couldn't tell a lie. What if you were taught in grammar school that George Washington was a liar and a deceiver and a huckster and a skin. That that's, doesn't even compute, does it? Now, some interpreters disagree with the, this approach completely. For example, a few years ago, uh, a radio talk show host who is Jewish, a guy by the name of Dennis Prager, some of you may be familiar with him, he published a commentary on the book of Genesis a couple years ago, and he Uh, argued that, quote, Jacob's behavior is often viewed as unscrupulous, but in reality, it's quite defensible. And then he goes on to try to give some of the explanations for why it is defensible, because, well, he, he needs him to be the good guy in the story. Similarly, another commentator went so far as to say that, yes, Jacob was a deceiver, but deception is not always sinful. In this case, Jacob was a righteous deceiver. That's what, that's what this commentator said. Jacob was a good man, a blameless man who righteously deceived those who opposed God's covenant. You see, these writers are attempting to justify Jacob's actions because they want him to be, or perhaps they need him to be, the hero of the story. This, after all, is the man whose name is later changed to that of Israel. In short, he's the figurehead of the future nation. Therefore, all of his actions must have been above board. But I believe that Genesis is actually telling us a different story. It's telling us that Jacob is a flawed character, just like you and I. And that his striving and his scheming is actually indefensible. Remember the striving and the scheming of Abraham and Sarah and how it ended up opening a new path that was not the right way? They just had to wait patiently for Isaac to be born. That whole Ishmael part of the story was their striving and their scheming was not a good thing. That can happen with God's people. It can happen with you and I. Well, for some reason, Jacob and all of his descendants with him ended up somehow being granted access to the promised land in spite of his sin and their sin. Recall Deuteronomy 9. Do not say in your hearts, as the people are entering into the promised land, that this is because of my righteousness. It is not because of your righteousness. You are a stiff-necked people. It's the same with Jacob. As we're, uh, you know, as we think about all the blessing that Jacob received, we also should think about the fact that it came at a cost. His blessing came at a cost. I mean, that's part of the story, as Jacob is blessed to live in the promised land, but Esau was cursed. Esau, the one who had the right to live in the land, as the right of the firstborn in that culture, ended up being sent away to the east. Jacob, the deceiver, was allowed to enter into the promised land at the expense of his brother Esau, who was the rightful heir And I think the best way to account for this is to pay attention to the way that these themes 
actually end up being resolved over time throughout the history of redemption. You see, we too are like Jacob. We are sinful and corrupt, and we do not have the right to enter into God's ultimate land of rest. However, if we, like Jacob, wear the garments of God's firstborn son, the one who did have the right to dwell in God's land, then we will not be sent away. We will be allowed to enter into the heavenly land of promise. And as with the Genesis account, all this comes at a cost. Jesus Christ himself was cursed so that we could be blessed. In order that we could be brought near, he was sent away outside the camp to Golgotha. Basically, what I'm suggesting this afternoon is that we begin to see God's word as a kind of symphony, like a musical symphony, which has many of these musical themes that repeat over time. Sometimes there will be variations on a theme, but if you listen carefully to the music of Scripture, sometimes these variations have, they, they remind you of earlier parts of the music, and then finally they are brought into some kind of ultimate resolution. That's the way symphonies work. And this is how we come to see that Jacob is not really the hero of the story. But instead we come to see that God, the God who comes to us in mercy and grace, the one who bears our curse, he is the real hero of this story. One of the things that initially gave me pause as I first began to study Genesis 32 closely is the way that a number of commentators ended up describing the encounter that Jacob had with God as he wrestled with him there by the Jabbok River. As we saw in our reading of this passage, or heard, this scene recounts the time in which Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And since the name Israel later came to represent the nation as a whole, the importance of this part of the story cannot be underestimated. This is a very significant scene in the Bible. Jacob becomes Israel, and the 12 sons become the 12 tribes. All the nation of Israel becomes the people of Israel, the Israelites. But strangely, many of the commentators that I consulted didn't end up treating this scene as a very significant moment in redemptive history, significant for the nation. Instead, they simply looked at it and interpreted it as a moment of personal victory for Jacob. Maybe this has something to do with the way we read the Bible. We often go to the Bible looking to it with our individual concerns. We don't think of it collectively, communally. We don't think in terms of the original audience. We think about what it teaches me. And that individualistic approach, you know, what, it, what happened here to Jacob only may be one of the things that we do incorrectly as we read this, this passage. The wrestling match, though, was a time in which Jacob, according to these commentators, through his own tenacity, they say, Jacob struggled with God and refused to let him go until he was able to secure a divine blessing. That's the way often the commentators write and speak of this scene. It's about Jacob and his struggle with God and refusing to let God go until he receives his blessing. But it's just about Jacob and God. And maybe this has implications for you and me. If you struggle with God, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're going through, and if you, if you refuse to let God go, and if you're persistent, he'll grant you your blessing. That's the 
practical implication for living the life of faith. So just as Jacob wrestled with God, so should we. And we should do this as we wrestle with God, for example, in prayer. This is a thing that comes up a lot in the commentators. We should wrestle with God in prayer, although prayer isn't in this passage. We should wrestle with him and tenaciously refuse to let him go until we receive our blessing. Listen, for the exam- listen, for example, to the way Matthew Henry, famous Bible commentator, describes this scene. He says, here was a mixture of the greatest courage and the greatest tenderness. Jacob is here wrestling like a champion and yet weeping like a child. Note that prayers and tears are the weapons with which the saints have obtained the most glorious victories. Jacob, you see, in this sort of interpretation, is presented as the champion, the victorious champion, who wrestles with God and comes out the victor. This is even the approach you'll find in otherwise respectable commentators such as Martin Luther or John Calvin, or even contemporary Reformed writers such as Sinclair Ferguson. Dennis Prager, in his commentary, does acknowledge the significance of this scene, since it is the event in which Jacob's name was changed to that of Israel. And in his exposition of the passage, he writes this. It is almost impossible to overestimate the importance of the meaning of the name Israel. It means to struggle with God. That God would bestow this name on his people could only mean that God assumes, even expects, those who believe in him to struggle with him. There are believers who think that struggling with God, such as questioning or even doubting God, is impious. But God assures us it is not only impious, but expected, and it can be meritorious. Now, I don't believe that, you know, everything that Prager says is wrong, and I, but I just don't think that most of what he's saying here is, can, can be derived from Genesis 32. I do think it's appropriate for us to struggle with God and to pray and but not a, there's not a, that's a, it's a decent sermon, just it doesn't come from this text. That's what my, my uh, seminary professor, Robert Godfrey, used to say. Good sermon, I just don't see how you got it from that passage. For Jacob, in this passage, isn't struggling with doubts of any kind, nor is he found to be questioning God in any way. No, Jacob isn't involved in an intellectual struggle with God, but instead is actually having a real physical altercation. With God. Prager goes so far as to say that this kind of intellectual or spiritual struggle with God can actually be meritorious. And this makes sense when you understand that he comes from a Jewish background. And since that language has never been taboo, really, in rabbinic theology. What is a little strange, however, is when you find that same sort of emphasis in Christian interpreters. I mean, if the point of the passage is that we should be like Jacob and grab hold of God and to refuse to let him go until we receive our blessing, it sounds like there may be a good deal of overlap with the theology that Dennis Prager is advocating. Though Christian interpreters might not use the word meritorious, they still end up arguing something along those lines when they say that we can secure God's blessing by our own grasping and striving and stubborn refusal to let go. So if you have your Bibles handy, I'll invite you to open it to Genesis 32 as we carefully make our way through this incredibly significant chapter. 
when I was with you last month, I believe it was about a month ago, we discussed the scene from Genesis 28 as Jacob was fleeing the land of promise. Uh, He was leaving the land because he discovered that his brother Esau had threatened to kill him. He was plotting to kill him, and so he says, I got to get out of Dodge. Why was he threatening to kill him? Because he had just deceived his father and stolen the birthright. As you recall, as Jacob was leaving the land, Jacob had a dream in which the angels of God were ascending and descending on a great staircase, and that Yahweh spoke to him in this vision and promised to be with him to bless him and to one day return him back to the land of promise. Now, just as a review, what had Jacob done to deserve this? What had he done? The answer is absolutely nothing. Jacob had just committed a great sin, and it was leaving the land. This is where God appeared to Jacob in mercy and grace. Unlike the, res- the residents of Babel who wished to build a tower reaching to the heavens, we didn't find Jacob in that encounter either building or climbing or doing anything. Rather, we saw he was just sleeping there at the bottom of that great stairway when God appeared to him and promised to bless him. And that is where we find the most amazing acts in redemptive history, when the, the person who you might think is the hero is actually doing nothing, sleeping. But God, you see, is the hero of the story. He's the one that makes all the promises and, and ultimately pushes redemptive history to its climax. Here at the opening of Genesis 32, Jacob is returning to the promised land, In Genesis 28, he was leaving. He stays away. He goes to the the region of Haran. He has wives and children. He is now on the way back. It's been 20 years, and he's making his way back to Haran. Why did he leave? Well, he he had the threat of his brother Esau. Guess what's on his mind as he's returning? He's afraid of his brother Esau. 20 years have passed, and he's still wondering whether his brother wants to kill him. We're told, as we look at the first two verses of Genesis 32, that as Jacob comes back into the land, the angels of God met him. And when he saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Manahaim, Mahanaim. So what had Jacob encountered when he originally left the land of promise? Well, he saw the great stairway with angels ascending and descending. And what does he see now as he returns to the promised land? An encampment of angels. And this is not an accident. This is significant because according to Genesis 31, 21, Jacob has crossed the Euphrates. He's now entering the the land. He's about to cross the Jordan. And basically, he's re-entering the land of promise at God's God's own gracious invitation. He's been exiled for 20 years into this region to the east of the promised land. And this area here is being referred to as God's camp. God's original camp, of course, was the Garden of Eden. This is the place in which God dwelled. But after Adam and Eve sinned, they were exiled from the garden. And the cherubim, you'll remember, with the flashing sword, barred humankind from re-entering into God's camp. It was posted at the eastern gate. But what's surprising here in Genesis 32 is that Jacob is allowed to walk past this kind of thing. 
The angels aren't barring him from re-entering into God's camp. They allow him to do so because he enters at God's gracious invitation. He had been given the promise, you shall return back to this land. In verse 3 and following of Genesis 32, we're told that Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, instructing them to say, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have been sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Now ask yourself, what is Jacob's biggest concern as he returns to the promised land? Judging from the words that we find here, as he re-enters God's camp, it appears that Jacob's biggest concern has to do with his brother. Recall that he'd originally been forced to flee the land because his brother's desire to kill him, and now after two decades, this is his still his major preoccupation. And it's a little more than ironic because Jacob, you see, has returned to this promised land, which is a kind of new Eden, the place of God's dwelling. The place of Eden had these, you know, the scary swords with the cherubim, and you're not allowed to pass through. And Jacob's not filled with fear about the significant importance of what is happening. He is re-entering the promised land, the new Eden, and he's thinking about his brother. Shall such a holy and transcendent God dwell with sinful man? This is what Jacob should be thinking. That's a question that comes up throughout the scriptures. This is the new Eden. God is dwelling with his people. Joshua, in chapter 24, put this question to the Israelites. He says in Joshua 24, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions and sins if you forsake the Lord and serve false idols and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do harm to you and consume you. Thoughts of this kind are far from Jacob's mind as he's entering again into the promised land. He does not fear God, but man. Esau is the least of Jacob's problems. He does not fear God. But God is Jacob's problem. God is our problem. Because he is holy, and we are not. God is Jacob's problem, and at this point in the story, he seems to be completely insensitive to this heavy and weighty reality. Think about Jesus' words when he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28. Or as we read throughout the Old Testament, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is a healthy kind of fear which leads us to despair of our sin and which leads us to hunger and thirst for a perfect and spotless righteousness, the kind that the king himself bestows upon his guests who gather before him at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. In verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 32, Jacob instructs his servants to send a message to his brother saying, Thus you shall say to my servant, to my my lord Esau, Thus says your servant, I have sojourned with Laban, I have oxen and donkeys, male servants, female servants, that I might find favor in your sight. That Hebrew word, favor, is the same word that could be also translated grace. 
it's a kind of word we usually associate with, with God and divine things. But this is something that Jacob is looking. He's looking for grace from his brother, whom he calls Lord. So ironically, Jacob is focused here not on the grace and favor of Yahweh as he re-enters the land, but the grace and favor of his brother Esau. And when he hears back from his servants that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men, Jacob is afraid and distressed and prays to God for deliverance from Esau because he fears, in verse 11, that Esau might come and attack me, the mothers with their children. He's fearing an attack from Esau. In verses 13 and 15, we're told that Jacob sent a present to his brother, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, lots of rams and cows and camels and calves and bulls. It's quite an offering. Out of his great fear, Jacob attempts to appease his brother's wrath. To appease his brother's wrath. These are themes that come up later in Scripture. (laughs) So that perhaps he will accept me. Acceptance is also another great theme that comes up in Scripture. In fact, that's the same word, the Hebrew word, that we found back in Genesis 4, in which Cain was told, if you do well, if you do not sin, won't you be accepted? And so did Cain end up doing what was right? Cain did not. Cain ended up murdering his brother. But what was the result? He was exiled out of the garden. To the east of Eden. What about Jacob? Has he done what was right? No. He has deceived his father and he has cheated his brother. And this is the very reason he lives in fear. This is a very strange story. All this should prompt us to ask once again why Jacob is being invited to re-enter into God's camp. Shouldn't he, like Cain, be exiled from the place of God's dwelling because of his sins? The point I believe we're meant to see again and again is that though Jacob deserves to be exiled, nevertheless, out of God's sheer grace and mercy, he has been invited to share in the inheritance by grace alone. It's very similar to the parable that Jesus tells of that great wedding banquet where he says, you know, the king invites people, both good and bad, to come to his wedding banquet and then supplies them with the appropriate garments for the occasion. Jacob is like that. He's he's not a good person, and yet he's been invited into God's land, God's camp. Now take a look at what happens in verse 22 and following. That night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, which is a tributary of the Jordan River. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else they had that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Why does Jacob do this? The answer is found back in verse 11. He was afraid that Esau would come and attack him. Okay? So he's protecting his family because this attack, this attack is is before his mind. He fears his, an attack from his brother. So the family will go here, and I will be, uh, if I have to meet my brother, I will face him alone. One thing is clear as we read this part of the story, and that's that Jacob isn't looking for God anywhere in this passage. So we read, when we read in verse 24, that, quote, 
a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. What would you might say went through, Esau, through Jacob's mind the moment he was attacked in the dark? What do you think went through his mind? That we have the narrator's perspective that this is a little different, but we read this account and it happens in less than a minute, but this is a long encounter for Jacob. When he's attacked, he's woken in his sleep. What do you think is happening in his head? He can't see. It's dark, right? There are no streetlights there by the Jabbok River. It's not hard to guess what he would think. We've been told what he's thinking. He's afraid of an attack from his brother Esau. So based on all that we've seen thus far, I'm suggesting that Jacob would most likely assume that he has been attacked by his brother Esau and that he is fighting Esau there in the dark. In their helpful book, Echoes of Exodus, Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson write, that, write this. It is very possible that fording a river in the dark, Jacob thought the man he was wrestling actually was Esau, whom he was scared of meeting, which might explain his desperation to find out the man's name. Only as dawn is about to break does Jacob realize that he has been wrestling with God himself. Similarly, John Lennox, the Oxford mathematician who also writes theology and apologetics books, argues for the same way of reading the text in his book on the life of Jacob, sorry, on the life of Joseph, which is a good book and has a number of introductory chapters uh, that deal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph, uh, John Lennox writes this, Jacob lingered behind and alone in the darkness, no doubt with increasing trepidation, imagined that the next person he would encounter would be his brother Esau. He had presumably decided, maybe to protect his family, that he must face Esau alone. Yet he was not alone, for without warning, in the middle of the night, he found himself under surprise attack. He probably thought at first that this was his brother Esau, who failed to be mollified by all the gifts that had now come, and that he had now come to fight him. His future would be decided by hand-to-hand combat in the middle of this night. Yet as the wrestling progressed, it slowly dawned on Jacob that there was something strange about the encounter. No, this strange opponent was not Esau. It was someone altogether different. That Jacob initially thought he was wrestling with his brother is a rather fitting idea when we stop to realize that this is something he's been doing his entire life. Even in the womb, Jacob had wrestled with Esau And he had been striving with him ever since. But in verse 25, we're given a clue that Jacob's assailant is someone else entirely. Quote, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, though this man is able to prevent, is now, though this man is not able to prevail against Jacob, he seems to have the supernatural ability to dislocate a hip by a mere touch. So something, as you're reading this narrative for the first time, you see this is not an ordinary man. We don't know who he is yet, but because it's just describing him as a man. But he can dislocate a, a hip at a touch. Now, that's the narrator's insight for us as the reader. But is this the insight that Jacob himself had? Was he able to tell that that's what happened? I would submit that all Jacob knew at the moment was that he suddenly began to feel a great deal of pain while wrestling with this guy in the dark. So he didn't know about the supernatural ability. He just, all of a sudden, his hip is out of socket. 
But in verse 26, this yet unidentified man says, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So now at this point, can we really argue that Jacob is demanding a blessing from the God of all creation? From his creator, from from Yahweh? Have we found any clues up to this point which indicate that he actually knew the identity of his wrestling partner? If in fact, as we'll see, there's evidence that Jacob is actually confused about his assailant's identity all the way up to verse 29. And I think it's very plausible to suggest that Jacob is still under the mistaken impression that he has been attacked by his brother Esau. And so when he says in verse 26, I will not let you go unless you bless me, he's attempting, I think, to do what he's been doing ever since he was born. He's attempting to secure his brother's blessing by means of human striving. He's doing what Abraham and Sarah were trying to do. They were going to make the promise come true by human striving. But the human striving plot never ends up working out. What we have to do is rest and wait and be patient for God to act. Here, he's, a try, he's still trying to get the blessing by human striving. And he says, I won't let you go until you bless me because he thinks he's struggling with Esau. In fact, in the ancient Near Eastern world, conflicts were often resolved by wrestling matches. And this word blessing can also mean kneel because when you bless a God, you kneel. The word is used in both contexts. I will not... I will not let you go until you bless me, until you kneel, until you cry uncle. This, if it's Esau, think about that interpretive possibility for a moment. He's attempting to secure his brother's blessing by the human striving uh, plot. And he's likely thinking Esau and I have to settle this thing once and for all. But in verse 27, the unidentified man asks Jacob a piercing question. He says, what is your name? And Jacob says, Yaakov, Jacob. Probably probably with some confusion, because if he's wrestling with, with his brother Esau, that's not the kind of question that, would, that you would expect. And here I think the narrator intends us to consider the significance of this question in light of Jacob's earlier deception, the one that happened back in Genesis 27, when Jacob went to his father, Isaac, saying, My father, and Isaac said, Who are you? Jacob is dressed in Esau's garments, wearing the goat skin, and he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. Just as an interpretive possibility, what if God is sort of doing the same thing back to Jacob? What if God is dressed in Esau's clothing? I am Esau, your firstborn. Now God is asking Jacob, who are you? I am Jacob. This was the very falsehood when he said, I am Esau. That was the very falsehood that it enabled Jacob to grab the blessing from his brother in the first place. And here in this scene, as he's re-entering the land of promise, which was actually Esau's by right, God himself robed in flesh, and perhaps we can say he was robed in the flesh and clothing and appearance of his brother, this God now appears to Jacob and finally asks him to come clean about his true identity. In verse 28, the man says, Your name shall no longer be called Yaakov. 
but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob's response to this amazing announcement in verse 29 shows that he is completely perplexed by these words, which is why he asked the man to tell him his name. Basically, even after it was revealed that Jacob had been striving with God, that just doesn't compute. Israel's patriarch is is so confused, he says, wait, who are you? In response to Jacob's inquiry, God in turn asks, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Think about this for a minute. Are we really to conclude that Jacob obtained his blessing because of his own spiritual tenacity? Is Jacob really that good of a wrestler? That he could be victorious over God? Of course not. Jacob is not blessed because of his strength. Instead, he actually discovers in this passage here that he's been blessed when he stops to consider the words he just heard, that he had not, in fact, been wrestling with an ordinary man in the dark, but with God himself. He had seen God face to face. And yet, when you think about tangling with God, usually you turn to ash. But he had seen God face to face and lived. His life had been delivered. Actually, not only had he been delivered, but for some, some strange reason, he was allowed to prevail over God. But how can anyone prevail over God? If this is really God in human flesh, he could have defeated Jacob with a single word, just like he dislocated his hip. And therefore, the only solution to this mysterious text is to say that Jacob overpowered this man and obtained the blessing because God in his mysterious providence, graciously allowed it to happen. Recall once again the principle that we've discussed earlier that Jacob received the blessing at the expense of his brother Esau, who suffered as a result of of Jacob's treachery and who ended up being sent away to the east, to the dry and infertile region of Edom. It seems that here in Genesis 32, God himself has become an incarnation of Jacob's worst fears and is playing the part of Esau, the patriarch's lifelong wrestling partner. Earlier in the story, it seems more than a little strange that Jacob should be awarded the promised land for his deceitful tactics. But perhaps here in this scene, God will set things right. God will give Jacob what he deserves. Perhaps justice will finally prevail, but instead... God allows Jacob to prevail over him in this completely unexpected plot twist. If you think about the stories of the gods, you think of the stories of Hercules. It's always might and power triumph. But here, God shows up and he allows himself to be defeated. Do you know of another story like this? And this unexpected plot twist actually becomes the rationale, the very reason why Jacob's name was changed to become Israel, which ultimately becomes the name of the future nation. This is how the people of Israel came to live in the land of promise. It all comes down to this moment, which is decidedly not about Jacob's strength and his striving. 
but about God's weakness and God's grace. For as Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's really interesting to see how Genesis 32 was interpreted by a first century Jewish thinker by the name of Philo of Alexandria. He lived around the time of Jesus in Alexandria, Egypt, and he writes that it was an angel who altered the name of Jacob. There are a few other texts in the Old Testament that refer to this encounter as Jacob's encounter with an angel. Uh, And yet, this particular, in the scene, it's very clear, you have not wrestled with men but with God. So we have this sort of language of God and angel both. And Philo calls us, though he calls him an angel, he's not thinking of an ordinary angel, but rather the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh, who also speaks and acts as Yahweh. This is the embodiment of Yahweh. And Philo and other first century Jews refer to the, this angel of the Lord, this messenger, this ambassador, it's probably a better translation than, than angel, this ambassador of Yahweh, the one sent by Yahweh, Philo, though he's not a Christian, referred to this angel of the Lord as the word, capital W, of God, just like John does in his prologue. In another passage, Philo writes that if God at times assumes the likeness of angels or men, we must understand this, that on occasion, he took the place of an angel as far as appearance went without changing his own real nature for the advantage of him who is not yet able to bear the sight of the true God. Those who are unable to bear the sight of God look upon his image, his angel word, as himself. Interesting. A lot of overlap with Christian theology, that, that is, but this is Jewish theology before the time of Jesus, or right at the same time, just a country away. Philo's comments help us to understand what first century Jews believed about texts such as Genesis 32. The one who had wrestled with Jacob was the angel or messenger of Yahweh, who also was Yahweh. This is the word or minister of God who appears in human flesh. And this background helps us to understand why it is that John can say in the opening of his gospel that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and that this word became flesh and dwelt among his people in the person of Jesus. I like the way that Augustine interacts with Genesis 32. Listen to these words. As he wrestled, Augustine says, Jacob prevailed against the angel. Some high meaning is here. And when the man had prevailed against the angel, he kept hold of him, whom he had conquered, saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. When the conqueror was blessed by the conquered... Christ was prefigured. Such great power had this conquered one that a single touch to Jacob's thigh made him lame. It was then by his own will that he was conquered, for he had the power to lay down his strength and the power to take it up again. He was not angry at being conquered, just as he was not angry at being crucified. This, I believe, lies at the heart of the significance behind Jacob's name change. For Jacob's new name, Israel, became that of the nation. And in the fullness of time, the leaders of Israel would once again struggle with God 
in human flesh, though they were totally unaware. You can read this account in John chapter 11, when one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin stands up and says, if we go on like this, Jesus will keep doing what he's doing, and everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and nation. You see what's happening? The children of Jacob, the people of Israel, are more afraid of the Romans than they are of God, who actually is in their courtroom, or will be soon. Then Caiaphas The high priest responded by saying, don't you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish? John then steps in and narrates saying he didn't realize that he actually was prophesying there that Jesus would die for the sins of the people. But here in John 11, we see that Jacob's children are still striving and scheming and plotting. And this is how that they intend to remain in the promised land. Fearing the Romans more than their own sovereign Lord, they don't yet realize here in this moment they are caught up in a struggle with God himself. Or that they have just condemned the word incarnate to death. But as Dorothy Sayers once eloquently put, she put it this way, officialdom simply felt that the established order would be more secure without him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quietness. That God should play the tyrant over man, she says, is the dismal story of unrelenting oppression. That man should play the tyrant over man is a usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God? This is an astonishing drama indeed. (laughs) In fact, she says the problem with the church today is not theology, it's not the theology is where the drama is all, all all there. The problem is with the people who are trying to make it more entertaining. And but in fact, she said they ended up putting people to sleep. The very thing that the people of Israel intended for evil, God intended for their good and our good as well. They intended for evil. They were going to do away with this man unjustly, just like Joseph. It's what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Same with Jesus. What they intended for evil, God meant for good. This is the story of Jesus. And this is the story of striving and plotting and scheming. Remember all those lines throughout the Gospels? They were plotting against Jesus. But this actually is not about their plotting and their scheming. Rather, it's a story of God's foolishness and God's weakness, which reveals to us the riches of his love and the depth of his grace and his mercy. It's the story of the foolish of God that is wiser than men and the weakness of God that is stronger than men. And as we've seen from our passage in Genesis 32, this is the same message that was announced from the very beginning. How did Jacob enter the promised land? Was it by his own striving and tenacity? No. As we look closely at this chapter this morning, ah, this afternoon, I thought I was going to do it. I thought I was going to make it. As we've looked closely at this chapter, we've discovered that Jacob wasn't the hero of his own story, but he himself confessed that his life had been delivered 
delivered, saved, rescued. That's what this word means. By the God who had descended to him in mercy and grace. Beloved, Genesis 32 does not merely provide hints about the coming of Jesus. But this same Jesus was actually the very one who wrestled with Jacob there by the Jabbok. He is the one who changed the patriarch's name to Israel and who allowed himself to be defeated, typifying his future redemptive work. And in the fullness of time, he's the one, though he could have called upon legions of angels to rescue him, allowed himself to be taken to Golgotha, where he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted on our behalf. This, beloved, is how we enter into the heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal land of rest, not by our striving, but by his weakness. Before I conclude, let me share one more scripture with you from Judges. In the book of Judges, there's this scene which the angel of the Lord appears to the parents of Samson. And they are confused and perplexed and uh, Manoah and his, uh, his wife, uh, there's this long, fascinating scene in which they're engaging with this angel of the Lord. And at one point, they ask the same question, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord says, exactly what he said to Jacob, why do you ask me my name? Except for, because redemptive history grows There's more revelation. There's one extra bit to this. He says, why is it you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Isaiah gets another glimpse in chapter 9, where he says, there will be a child who is born, whose name shall be the Wonderful Counselor. This is how we know. This is the one who appeared in humility. He had the power to set things right, and to act with justice and to expel Jacob out of the land. But in mercy and grace, he not only welcomed him, but he also allowed Jacob to defeat him because he's typifying the future and the ultimate redemption. The ultimate path for us is not through our strength and striving, but by God's weakness, God's humiliation, and his redemption at Golgotha. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for having mercy and compassion on us, though we have sinned against you in all of our striving and scheming. You sent us a rescuer and redeemer, the word made flesh. Even before he came, you revealed his plans and purposes in countless ways throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And so we ask that you would open our eyes more and more, that we would not only see our true condition, but also the grace and mercy we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Conform us more and more to his image and grant that we may remain his disciples throughout the remainder of our lives to the end that we may be received in your eternal kingdom, world without end. Amen.